And so I've seen a lot of people function out of that paradigm, and it becomes frustrating for them because God is not at your beck and call. You're at his command. He is not at your command. Okay? And so there is this man-centered paradigm about the miraculous, and we ended up having a disconnection in a partnership with God because God is sovereign. And when I say that, I'm not saying that God um, is, again, reluctant and doesn't have a willing heart to engage us. It's just that he's not going to be treated less than God. And so the biblical pattern about the miraculous is that God partners with his church. He's engaged with his church. And he, he wants to deeply partner with his church. And we're going to see that. And he has in times past. But there is a resetting of some of our foundations and our perspective and our mindset about the miraculous. And that God does the miraculous when the church becomes God-centered. And it's about the vindication and the glorification of the Son of God. If you want... The, just the aggressive nature of God. If you want God to become deeply involved in the work of God in your generation, in and through the church, the church must return back to the original tent of why God established the church and the reason why Jesus established the church. And he made this declaration. He said, I will build the, the type of church that I'm constructing, creating. I will build my kind of church. Not your kind of church, not the one that I would like to have. It, it's the one that God dreamed about from the very beginning of time. That he would have a people that are known by his name, that love to live for him and to glorify his name in their midst. And so you're going to see that the early church, as, as they preached everywhere, and they went about preaching, and, and some of the message that they, they preached was they preached about no other name. No other name given among men that they might be saved, that they might be delivered, that they might be healed. In this chapter that we're going to go to in Acts chapter 3, once this intervention of God happens that heals a lame man, the miracle sets a context for this message. And the message was that Jesus Christ died, but that's not the end of the story. He was raised from the dead, and that's not the end of the story. Jesus Christ is ascended, and He is seated. He is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. And so Peter clearly said the miracle opens up this opportunity for the glorification and the re-glorification of the Son of God. Now, in this text that we're going to read out of Mark, uh, chapter 16, verse 19, says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken into heaven. And again, this glorification of the Son of God. He sat down. It's extremely important that you and I recognize and understand today that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he is ruling and reigning with a great expectation. That every adversary, all opposition to his worldwide global domination in every nation, among every tribe, among every nation. And so right now there is this, this, this passion, resolve of God the Father to see His Son receive the reward for which He has suffered and to see every knee bow and every tongue declare and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out based upon that reality, based upon that fact. They went out and they proclaimed, they preached, they declared everywhere. And this is what happened. As they were preaching the right message at the right time, it says the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now this word in the Greek, and I'm going to go ahead and thank you, my brother. You already moved to this text. I want to define for you 
this word where it says God worked with them. It's an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word synergeo, and I'm not pronouncing that properly, uh, but it's close enough for a country boy from Indiana, all right? But we get our English word synergy from that, and the concept of synergy means that when parts come together, they can do more than they could do separately. And so God is saying to the church, you have your assignment. And I, I just appreciate how God takes a service and he forms a message that confirms and supports what God is, is wanting to help teach and, and, and declare to us today. But there is this place where the, the church must assume its position. There is this thing where the Lord is, is, is saying, I've cast you in a certain role. You must show up to the casting call. And, the, and, and what he's casting you in the role is that you are a preacher. You are a one that gives testimony to what God is, is saying about his son. What he's wanting to testify about his son. What he is wanting to do in glorifying and re-glorifying the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so it said they went out and they preached everywhere. It's our responsibility to open our mouth and to begin to declare the praises of God and to testify of what God has done in Christ and what he's doing in Christ and what he will do in the future through his Son, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So it's, it's what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to continue to do. And as the church gets Jesus-centric and Jesus-focused, God said, I will synergize with you. Because that is the message that will attract my activity, my interventions. That, that is the message that will attract me to begin to work with you in a synergistic way. And an illustration of synergy is that, and, and these are based upon a, you know, a simple analogy, but if we had two donkeys and we were plowing a field, if you had one donkey, he could pull 7,000 pounds. You put those two donkeys together and harness them together, you would think mathematically that what they would be able to do in a combination of both of them being harnessed together, that they could pull 14,000 pounds. 7,000 pounds, one of them can pull two 14,000 pounds. But that's not what happens. When they are hitched together, when they are partnered together, when they are, when they are joined together, they in fact can pull 21,000 pounds together. Now, if we can get the church to prepare itself, to position itself, and to come into a real unity of the faith upon the centrality of what God once declared in a region, in a city, two families. And that is that we're going to focus in on giving Jesus the highest praise and the greatest glory that, that we are going to uh, affirm and we are going to testify over and over and over again of the greatness of the one who has saved us and redeemed us and purchased us by his blood if we will recenter the message of the church away from us and back upon the finished work of Jesus watch the increase of the level of the miraculous in the church and so I've been saying this every place I've been preaching I've been prophesying it. And, and the, you know, prophecy is something that we, we are, are saying about what the future looks like in the church. But I've also been wanting to just, you know, prime the pump of the people of God's heart to where they can have faith for that. There is going to be a renaissance of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ back in the church. There is going to be a recentering and a re-emphasis of the cross and the resurrection and the glorification of the Son of God back in the church. You go, well, Lynn, I thought that that's what the church has been preaching. Well, I, 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 I'm just, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy that I, I've watched unfold in the church in the last 30 years in my generation where I've seen us move away from that old, old story because we kind of got bored with it 
and, and we drifted off on man-centered things and, and, and we focused on self-help and self-improvement and then we put some type of a garment around it that dressed it up, that made it look like authentic Christianity. But how many of you have read some self-help books and after you finish the book, you realize you needed more improvement and help that that book can give you? And I, I'm, not, I'm not against helping yourself and improving yourself. But I know what I was and I did not need another book from a best-selling author to tell me I'm going to give you a few uh, uh, helpful hints to make your life better. I needed a miracle called the new creation, called the new birth, to change me from what I was into something that I could not do for myself. And there was a miracle of me being born again. And it was a revelation of a new creation. And so I, I, I'm all aboard the band wagon of the miraculous. And we need it not less, we need it more. But to get there, God works with those and with the word that confirms the authentic, the, uh, the authentic message of the gospel. So there is going to be a process of recovering what the gospel is. There's going to be this renaissance of preachers that are willing to preach it and to lift up the name of Jesus and make his name famous again. And so you see in the scriptures that there is a, a pattern that involves the miraculous. And, and we say, God, we want your interventions. But I find that the pattern is that when the church gets the message correct, then you get the miracle. All right. Now, I want us to look at this passage and I want us to uh, the reason why I entitled this the anatomy of a miracle. I want us to see some components when God begins to work the miraculous in our midst that there are there's a pattern. There are miraculous things that begin to unfold that make miracles happen. I've used this uh, couple statements before, and I just like to repeat them because I do believe uh, revelation uh, comes by repetition sometimes. That the more we reinforce it and repeat it to ourselves, we get those truth concepts deep in, inside of us. And so as you study about the working of miracles in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is one of the manifestations of the Spirit, you look at that phrase, and it's not just the gift of miracles, it's the gift of the working of miracles. So I always tell people that if we are going to partner with God, we've got to get our, our message centered around on what God is passionate about, and that's His Son, and the glorification of His Son. But then also there is this thing where we've got to learn how to partner with God in a greater way when God comes to intervene and to confirm what we're speaking and what we're declaring. And so miracles have to be worked. And I, and I have often said this to the people of God as well, that many times miracles, when they are initiated and when they begin, they do not look spectacular, and you would have never, you would never know that there's a, there is a miracle underway. Because many times they start out so simple. So a little boy offers up his lunch to one of the disciples, and that those few loaves and those few fishes do not look like a miracle in the making. But God takes what little we have and begins to put His grace upon it. And before it's all over, it feeds 5,000 men. And there's probably about 10,000 total with women and children. God does, intervenes in time and space, and He does a miracle. And so many times miracles do not look like they're going to be a miraculous process. But we learn to synergize with God. We learn to yoke ourselves with the Lord. And there are certain aspects and principles and patterns that you can see on what, where the partnership begins and how it begins to develop. And I think that it's important that many times we've got to see where God is beginning a miracle, recognizing it, discerning it and seeing through God's eyes what he is wanting to do and then once we see it go join ourselves to him and then begin to work with him as it begins to unfold now I want us to read this passage of scripture in Acts chapter 3 and this is a very familiar miracle 
It's a notable miracle in the book of Acts, and it was a breaker miracle. I mean, this was a sign and a wonder that created an opportunity for thousands of people to get saved. And it started out in Peter's life and John's life as just an everyday type of day where they were just going about their business, doing what their routine was. They were going up to the temple to pray. But the Lord drew them into a partnership with him. And I want us to see that. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the third hour of prayer or the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, asking alms of those entering the temple. Now in Acts chapter 4, we read, because now the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin, they have the opportunity to steward uh, the testimony of the miracle, the platform that God created for them to preach the gospel. And the Bible tells us that the man said that he had been lame for over 40 years. So this was a guy that had some type of birth defect since birth. And, and his lifestyle, he had been carried. The Bible tells us that he was carried by others. And that basically his life was begging at entry points to the temple. And that for all of his lifetime or his adult lifetime, that this is what this guy did. He was you know, a fixture at these doorways of the temple begging. He was known to have had this birth defect. Everybody knew that this is a guy that begs, and the reason why his life purpose has been begging is because he, he doesn't have any way to support himself with livelihood because of this birth defect. Over 40 years this man has been in this condition. He is a fixture. I, I'm, I'm repeating this because I want you to see. There, there are things that we become familiar with. There are things that we see every single day. This guy did the same thing every day over and over and over again. He was there. They could see him. They knew him. They knew his voice when he called out, alms for the poor. This was a very familiar environment. And so it says that he was laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, asking alms. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. This was nothing surprising. This was something that was very familiar. And in the Greek language, when you unpack this passage of Scripture, when it says that he saw Peter and John, the, the use of the word in him seeing was he was using his natural perception, his his eyes, his natural sight to see Peter and John. But I love the transition because here is this routine, Peter and John, we go up to pray, we go up to pray several times a day. This is our routine, this is our ritual. There are, this is a very familiar surrounding and this guy, he's making natural uh, judgments, the cripple is. The, the disabled man, he's, he's making assessments, calling out to people who he thinks that can help him superficially with some finances. But there was something about that day that was different than any other day. And this is where miracles begin. And the concept is, is kairos, the, the, the God kind of time where God says, I'm going to break in at an appointed time, an appointed moment, and I'm going to break in, and I'm going to break into time and space, and I'm going to reveal myself as God. And when God comes at appointed times, it is up to us to discern when eternity is invading our time. Now, I'm going to give you an exhortation and a challenge. The church must break away from our bondage to time. And I'm not talking about church services. So this is not me lobbying for more preaching time or somebody lobbying for more time to do this. I'm talking about not on Sundays. I'm talking about on Mondays. Because many of us run ourselves by the clock and we are controlled by time. 
The word bondage is a chain to an age. And God wants more of eternity to break into time for heaven to come into earth. And the only way heaven comes into earth is we allow appointed times where eternity it breaks in and there is a divine disruption of our addiction to our schedules. I raised my voice there and I got a little passionate. But it's amazing. We're controlled by the clock. We run ourselves by the clock. And, and so here these guys, they had a schedule. It was, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They, it was their custom to go up to pray. And so here they are. And, and, you know, like many of us, we go, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. We're going to be late. But I appreciated Peter and his willingness, instead of allowing the familiar voice of all the beggars calling out and asking for alms and, and the, the parade of beggars outside of the, those doorways, that there is this thing of familiarity where sometimes we just blind ourselves to what's around us. So what we have to do in our generation, if we're going to reclaim what we've lost and begin to synergize with God more, we've got to slow down our lives. I'm waiting for another amen and then I'll reset. We've got to slow down our lives. A few years ago, there was a, one of the top uh, recruits out of high school to play basketball was a young man that was recruited to Michigan State. And uh, everybody thought this kid was just going to, you know, outperform, you know, because he had done such a great job in high school. And he's recruited to Michigan State. And he, when they started to playing basketball, it was like he, he, he struggled. And the reason why he struggled was because he said he was, it was hard for him uh, to keep up with the speed of the game. Because everybody else is now as fast as you were when you were in high school. And so he, he was having trouble keeping up with the speed of the game. And, and, and they just said that sometimes he looked lost out on the court. And passes that he used to make as a point guard. He was missing people and stuff like that. And then in the middle of his season, because he did start his freshman year, there was something that began to happen. And he started to looking like the basketball player that everybody wanted to recruit out of high school. And so one of the reporters, they asked him, they said, what has happened? Your game is starting to come back into stride. And, and you look like a brand new player out there. He said, I learned to slow the game down. Now, I don't know how he did that. But all of a sudden, either God got him up to speed to where he could acclimate to that type of environment. But in his mind, he was able then to process what he was seeing in a different way and then to be act with anticipation upon what he saw was developing his place. And he said, I had to cause the game to gear it down. We live our lives almost at a place of terminal velocity. Most of us have no margins in our life. And if one thing goes on, or one thing goes wrong, it's, it's not a, a minor struggle or a problem in your life. It's like catastrophic failure. And so what we're doing is we're living life based upon the spirit of this evil age, not on a kingdom calendar. And so a part of it is we've got to recenter our message, but we also must become obedient to the message that we're supposed to be recentering ourselves around. Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. Man, this is, a, this is one of these messages where it's kind of a gut check moment. Jesus is Lord over your time. He is Lord over your schedule. He is Lord over your work. He's Lord over all. He's Lord of your family. And so I appreciated this moment when Peter is walking and there is this moment where God breaks him out of time, out of his schedule, out of his agenda, and God begins to bring him into a partnership so that a miracle can happen. And this is the amazing transformation. It said, Peter directed his gaze at him. Now this phrase, gaze, is different than the, the, the disabled man saying that he saw Peter and John. This is a compound word in the Greek where it means that when Peter heard this man calling out, 
he was able to direct himself with his natural hearing to who was calling to him. But when he turned to look, there is a moment where he didn't look at this man only through his natural eyes. The compound word here, it means that God began to stretch his vision. That he began to see something different than what he saw the day before. More than likely, Peter saw this man the day before. He saw this guy yesterday. He heard him with his ears. He saw him with his eyes. But today, when he heard him call out, he turned and looked. But he saw something different this day than he had seen the day before. God began to stretch his vision. And what we're describing is God began to allow him to see this man in a way that he had never seen him before. And the simple principle is, is that miracles begin when faith begins to see what God is wanting you to see. Miracles begin when God begins to partner with us and He begins to give us vision to see what He wants us to see. Now, in our lives, we fight with this sin of familiarity. And, it, and, it, and it, it's like a... You know, one of the major battlegrounds in, in the, the good fight of faith that we f fight is this, this warfare that surrounds us of this issue of familiarity. And so, I always, uh, and I, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but I'll go ahead and say it now. I have to constantly fight with the familiarity that I have about myself. Because no one knows you outside of God like you know yourself. And so God wants to use you in, in powerful ways. God wants to use you to, to work wonders and to do miracles. God wants you to heal the sick. God wants you to set the captive free. The Lord, the Lord envisions you of being all that He created you to be and has empowered you to be. But the struggle is real. When I know Lynn Furrow like I know Lynn Furrow and I allow familiarity with myself to define who I perceive myself to be. And so I thank God that God in a moment of time can stretch our vision beyond that which is familiar and allow us to see things the way heaven sees them. And if we don't see our families like heaven sees them, if we do not see our church the way heaven sees this church, the struggle is real, the battle is real. And our choice is that we become a people that get stuck in the wilderness of our own familiarity. And, and we're out there seeing that, yes, God spoke about a, a, an inheritance, a future that has hope, a, a promised land where there are things that are ahead of us in our future. And God is wanting to take, He's, he's brought us out of Egypt not to bring us to a place of, of death and dying because of, of us losing sight of the vision that God has for us because we're consumed by our own doubts and unbeliefs about ourselves. I shared this with Eric and Tom last night. Clearly, the issue of unbelief that the children of Israel had was not that they didn't believe that God could get them into the land. They didn't believe that God could do it in and through them. Because when they went in and they got, got received the report and came back, they made these statements. They said, the giants and the wall cities and the obstacles that we are facing, we, we are small in comparison to what we're facing. Their issue wasn't in that they believed that God could not bring them in or that God was limited in His power. Because these were a people that had a history of the miraculous. They knew the ability of God. But did they believe that God was going to do it in them? Did they believe that God could be great 
wonderful and marvelous in and through their lives to display, display His power and glory. This is the issue of where faith is in the church. I find, and the Bible says they did not enter into the promise because of their unbelief. And again, the unbelief was, was, was not directly directed towards God. It was indirectly towards God, but it was directed towards themselves and God's ability to use them to be a people of inheritance. Okay, I'll move on. So the next thing, once Peter begins to perceive that God is doing something different and he sees it through heaven's eyes, and I'm going to give you just two quick scriptures to confirm this principle. I want you to look at Exodus 3, 4 with me. Don't turn there. But this principle is something that you can trace. If you're a student of the miraculous and, and learning to partner with God, you can see, you can trace this principle throughout the Old and New Testament. Here is this thing where this shepherd, Moses, is out in the wilderness. He's seeing familiar terrain and territory every single day. And people go, well, it was the, the burning bush that attracted his attention. I do not think that a, a bush burning in the desert was something that was so earth-shaking or earth-shattering. I think that he's seen things burn in the desert before. Things catch on fire in the desert. Matter of fact, I've been in the desert and I've seen solitary wood trees that are charred on the outside. How did that happen? Did somebody come around and, and light them on fire? No, things all of a sudden catch on fire. More than likely in a storm, a lightning strike, something like that. But things burn in hot places. But the Bible tells us that Moses, when he saw this burning bush, again, it attracted his attention. But God began to stretch his vision and he saw something that was unique about this bush that was burning. It was burning but was not consumed. This ordinary thing becomes something that was extraordinary. That which was familiar, he began to see something unfamiliar about it. Again, I want us to hear that. Because we are missing miracles by missing what God is wanting to show us in our everyday lives. And the Bible says that he turned aside to see. This means that once it caught him, he began to look at it more intently. He began to get a vision of it. In other words, seeing it spiritually. And he saw that God was at work in the bush. And then he came in for closer examination. Let's look at this miracle in Acts chapter 4. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul, here it is, this concept of, of extending the vision. This thing of looking at something, but then recalculating and re-looking at it, reframing it through the lens of God. It means that there is this moment where God begins to give inspiration and vision and insight to the moment. And so Peter is preaching and there are people in the audience listening to him. But all of a sudden he begins to focus upon this one guy. Why are you staring at me? I, as a pastor, as a, a preacher, I've had many people come to me and they've told me, they said, why did you stare at me the whole time during the message? I had no idea that I was staring at them. But there are times where God wants to get to you the message that day. That you understand that this message was perfectly fit for you that day. And it was your word that God was speaking to you. And so this is this thing that as he's preaching, he begins to look at this guy. And then the Holy Spirit begins to have him zone in on this man. And there was something that he began to seeing led to a perceiving moment. And he saw that this man had a faith, had a holy desire to receive something from God. And he said he had faith to be made well. And he said in a loud voice, 
Stand up then and walk. And so this leads us to the next point that I want to make in the text in Acts chapter 3. Peter said, not only does faith see, but faith must follow what they see by describing what you do see. You must speak it out. You must testify about it. You must declare it. You must speak. Faith speaks upon what it perceives and sees. Now, there is this thing that I want us to, to just drill down, and I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly. Faith sees, faith speaks. But I want to, again, drill down on this thing of what faith speaks. Faith speaks based upon what we see, and that is where God is wanting to work, but also it speaks out of the resource of what's inside of us. Now, there is a passage of Scripture, and we're not going to take time to turn there, but in Ephesians, and it's so familiar to us because we memorized it, we paraphrase it, we quote it. It says, God can do the exceeding abundant above all that we could even ask, think, or imagine, if, I'm, if I am paraphrasing it and amplifying it, beyond what I can even comprehend is what Paul is saying, that God can do more. God can do more. Everybody say that with me. God can do more. So if you need more of God in your life and more of the miraculous in your life, I want to encourage you. Your engagement with God is not overcoming the reluctance of God. You are, you are, are realizing the willingness of God to synergize with you. But He can do the exceeding abundant above all that we can even ask, think, or imagine, or comprehend. But let's finish the second half. According to the, His power that works in you. Can you say it with me again? His power working in you. And so when faith speaks, it's based upon a perception of what I see God wants to do in somebody else's life. But you'll never deliver what God wants to say to the one that God wants to intervene in their life unless you know the power that is working at you in you mightily. And so sometimes the miracle does not multiply in our eyes. God is at work. He's allowing us to see His intent, His desire, His willingness. But we're not able to fully realize the working out of the miracle and to see the breakthrough happen because we have a confidence crisis based upon whether we're going to be able to deliver fully what God is wanting to do. And so what we do is we speak in measured tones. We want to be very highly cautious, highly cautious about this. I want us to measure out very carefully what we're about to say here. And that's why there is a thing where there is going to be a restoration of the courage of the people of God. A confidence in God saying, I'm going to work with you, and I'm going to accompany you right through this process. And what I'm showing you is not something that is just, you know, just some hopeful wish. But this is based on the reality of heaven. I desire to glorify my son. I desire to testify about my son. I desire to exalt my son. What you are seeing, my son, what you are seeing, my daughter, is truly a manifestation of my will and my intent to allow heaven to come to earth in this moment. And so once we break free from our time and we start experiencing more of eternity, there is going to be a return of the confidence of the voice of God within His people and a ministry that comes out of us that's not based on a hope so, but based upon a reality of the power of God that we are confident that is working in us mightily. And so I appreciate what Peter says to him. Peter did not say to him, I don't have any money for you, but we're going to offer some prayers, and I hope that it works out. 
I just want to bless you right now. I know it's tough 40 years as somebody that's disabled and you're begging here right now. And this must be a tough gig that you've been signed up for. And, and can I just give you some words of just nice human empathy and sympathy. I appreciate a man that has Holy Spirit boldness. Because this man has, 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 has directed his eyes. And God has protracted the understanding, the perception that has allowed him to comprehend through spiritual vision what God is at doing and, and working in that moment. Therefore, he says, silver and gold, I don't have. What you think you need, I, I can't provide that for you. But God says something better than what you think you need. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. What I do have to give you, I am willing to give you. I want to give it to you. It's on the inside of me. I will give it to you now. Now, I find that the church doesn't have that type of confidence. And we can trace that confidence crisis right back to our disbelief about what we have on the inside of us. And I say, Peter, what an audacious statement. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have. What do you have, church? If you haven't settled that faith question, then you're not going to be able to speak. If you don't understand what's on the inside of you, you're not going to be able to see, let alone say. But the last thing is that it says that he took him by the right hand, and faith always acts. Faith sees, faith speaks, according to the power that works in us mightily. But faith also acts. It acts in a way. And so this guy, and, and I'm not picking on our you know, ministry processes that we've been taught, because I've taught some of these processes. And I do believe in prophetic permission. And so if I'm going to lay hands on somebody, I always ask them, you know, can I, can I put my hand on your shoulder or, because I do believe when people give you permission, you know, that there is this authority that you have to function in the authority that you have in Christ. But, you know, to be honest with you, this is all real polite and this is real nice when we do this kind of stuff. I think Peter needs to go to our school of ministry and learn, <laughs> learn some things. Now, when I say that, you go, Lynn, you're being facetious. You got that exactly right. You, you need to, you need to, be, you know, Peter, you need to be a little more gentler. You need to be more careful. I, I just think that it was one seamless act. The guy is going, please, alms for the poor. And it just catches it. And then Holy Ghost moment. He doesn't take his eyes off him. Because the vision's unfolding. He said, I don't have money for you, but what I do have. I'm going to give you. Get up and walk. I believe that it was a thing where in that moment, it was seamless. Because of a reality of a God-appointed moment where faith saw, faith spoke, and faith acted. And the result was a miracle. How many want to see some miracles? I cry every day to God. Oh, God, I want to see the name of your son vindicated. I want to see the power of cancer broken in my generation. I want to see people that are on their deathbeds, them, them brought out of, of, of from, brought from death to life. And, and, you know, this is the heritage of the church. This, this is our birthright. We are a miraculous people, but we're living in a, a spiritual poverty in regards to this birthright and inheritance. And so I'm saying, God, I'm going to become more centered around Jesus. And then I'm going to begin to slow myself down in a way in which I'm going to allow you to be able to reframe my world with the eyes of God. And I want to, again, break out through the veil of my flesh and begin to look underneath the surface that in this, you know, vessel of clay, there is a treasure that God wants to reveal 
in and through me and in and through you. And the results will be staggering. The results will be, the results will be that people will line up outside of New Covenant Worship Center. And it won't be people coming in late for church. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you study these, these notable miracles, these breaker miracles, when, when it, it starts happening, I mean, it changes the entire environment. And I, I wish I could teach a little more, but I'm not. But there is this stewardship. Once the miracles begin to happen, there is a very important aspect of stewarding the testimony, stewarding the glory of God, stewarding the message in the moment. And so there's an important Another aspect of this message that once miracles begin to occur, there's a responsibility of stewardship. But when they begin to happen, there will be no place to sit. Matter of fact, use this place for midweek school of ministry. Because you won't stay here very long. You'll be finding a venue that will appropriately seat the people that are wanting to know the reality that the God that they're, they, they've heard about is not some historical Jesus, but he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I know he, what he's going to do forever, and I know what he has done, but what about the stewardship of today? Today. And I want to say not another day without the miraculous in the midst of the people of God. Would you stand with me, and we're going to pray. And thank you so much for your heart to hear this morning. I want you just to raise your hands. Because the hands you raise, they are the hands of what? They're the hands of God. Father, we so desire to learn how to work with you and not against you. Remember, we're reminded of the words of Jesus when he said, my father is always at work. Therefore, I'm working. You are not reluctant and distant. We're not trying to overcome some opposition of your heart to squeeze a, a miracle out of you every 100 years. Oh, God, you desire to do signs and wonders. Lord, we're reminded of Jesus looking over Jerusalem. He said, if you only knew what belonged to you. Oh, God, we hear your voice over us as a generation. And we hear you saying, if you only knew what belonged to you. And so today, this morning, we want to say faith sees and faith speaks and faith acts. And we say, Lord, we want what belongs to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that for those of us that are caught up in the machinery of, of this age and, and, and the, 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 the oppression and bondage to time, God, I ask that there would just be this moment where we un, un, untie ourselves from the tangled knot of time upon our lives. We start acting like those that truly are the glorious sons of God that have glorious liberty to follow the Lamb wherever He is going. And so I ask, Lord, that there would come a spirit of of uh, inspiration and illumination to the eyes of our heart. And that, Father, there would be no one in Newcastle that we blindly look at them through the lens of familiarity. No matter how long we know them, no longer how long they've been a, a mess and we've written them off, God, I pray that we would uh, see them through the lens of grace. We would see them through the lens of faith. We would see them through the lens of hope. And in that lens of your eyesight, God, let us see that messes are the staging grounds of your miracles, God. This man, over 40 years disabled, was made to walk. 
through the name of Jesus. Father, I just ask God that you would connect our mouth with what's inside of our spirit. Father, let us see that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is inside of us. Father, I pray that every veil, I pray that every obstruction, I pray that every cloud and and fog and distortion of, of who you are, but of who New Covenant Worship Center perceives themselves to be, I pray there would be no separation between your heart and the heart of the people of God. And I pray that as we turn and redirect our focus back upon the Lord, I thank you for the veil being taken away in Christ. And so if we are right now distracted by anyone or anything, Lord, I thank you for allowing us to refocus and reframe our vision to you and your will and your purpose. Father, I thank you that we have received power because the Holy Spirit has come upon us. Therefore, we will and we are your witnesses. And Father, I pray that from this place, as we enter into this week, I pray, God, that you would give us divine opportunities, kairos moments, and that as we join ourselves with you, God, that you would unlock the miraculous. Lord, I'm believing that this week, miracles are going to happen. Lord, I want to claim right now that people will be brought into the kingdom saved by the miracle of the new birth. Lord, I want to claim that there will be people that will be notably healed by the power of God this week. Lord, I'm believing you, God, that those that are oppressed by the enemy, Lord, they would be set free by the authority and the power of God. That's in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we just want to realign ourselves to our King and His kingdom. Jesus, You are Lord. You are sovereign. Father, You have appointed Your Son on Your holy hill, Zion. And we acknowledge that He is both King and Christ. Reign and rule in and through your people this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.